Well, good morning. Uh, I'd like to open in prayer. Lord, we just thank you uh, for this Lord's Day. We thank you that it was on a, a Sunday morning that they went to the tomb and, and no one was there. And that you were risen because you're who you say you are. And because your work was complete and because of that we can be yours. And we pray that you would be with us this morning. We pray, Lord, that you would pour out your spirit. That there would be nothing here that is, has anything to do with, with me or, or the flesh. But that it would be about your word. It would be about the gospel. And it would be about seeing how you really love us. And the reality that is about to unfold before all of us. And we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Robin and I were, were driving in this morning. And we kind of remembered that we had been here once before. And we were trying to figure out when were we in this area before. And, and then we realized, actually Robin realized, that it was about 39 years ago. I was 23. You can do the math. It's pretty bad. I was 23 and she was 18. And we had a date and we went to the, to the beach. And we drove through here. That's the last time that we were here. And also, a little bit more than 39 years ago, we got married about an hour from here in Houston in a place called Vargo's Garden. I don't know if any of you are old enough to remember that. But uh, so, in a way, we've kind of completed the circle to be with you today, and we're very grateful uh, to be with you guys, excited about what God's doing in your church, excited about the event tonight, and how God will work there. Uh, today, I wanted to share with you with what um, I'm calling the King's Table and the Gospel. But I'd like to start first by uh, telling you a little bit about uh, our story. Um, Robin and I uh, had three children. Uh, the one the Lord brought to us through the natural way, and two he brought through adoption. And uh, for about eight years, uh, I thought we were all done. Um, I thought that was plenty. And my wife kept praying and felt like that God had a plan for us and that there might be another child that he wanted to bring to us through adoption. And I kept thinking, well, no, I've got heart disease, and I'm trying to start a business. And uh, one day, like a lot of men, if you're, there's some older guys here I see, I heard the Lord say to me, you know, sometimes I speak to you through your wife. It might be a good idea to listen. And, uh, and lo and behold, uh, I knew exactly what that meant. And that I had not been available for how God wanted to use our family. And, uh, and Robin had had on her heart that maybe God was leading us to Korea. Our first two adoptions were in San Antonio. And, and so when I thought, actually what I really thought was when I said, well, I think we should be open to maybe adopting again. I thought I'd be off the hook. And to my shock, she said, well, if you believe that, then maybe you should call and talk to him yourself. <laughs> and I called and found out that uh, there was a need in Korea at that time for families that would adopt uh, baby boys. And so in 1994, I got on a plane in San Antonio and I flew uh, all the way to Seoul. I stopped over in Hong Kong. I actually found out later I had a heart attack. I've had heart disease since I was 35. Uh, lived through that. And the next day, I, I met this, um, this young man uh, that would be our our fourth child and my second son his name was Dae Hyun 
And uh, interestingly, while I was there, and I and Rodney stayed home with our little kids, I had to wait to complete the process. And they said, would you like to go out to the orphanage and see the kids that are never going to have a family? And that was the first time in my life, even though intellectually I knew there were orphanages and orphans, I'd never thought about, you know, what that looked like or about the reality for those children. So I said, sure. And I went out and I went to this uh, orphanage and they took me from building to building and I saw children that were just beautiful and perfect but couldn't be adopted and I saw some that were terminal and, and waiting to die and all through this tour this little three-year-old Korean girl who was just beautiful every time we would stop she would pull on my pants leg and say this one word in Korean and uh, I was kind of curious so towards the end of the tour I asked the lady I said what's that little girl saying and she started crying I knew she didn't want to tell me and I said please tell me what this little girl's saying every time we stop and she said, well, Mr. Pennington, she's saying, Daddy, Daddy. And that's when the lights came on for me. And that was how Hope for Orphans uh, actually, I think, came to be was, was on that very day. In fact, I wanted to show you a picture of our family. This is the king's table, by the way. Before we switch from this, uh, we're going to talk about the king's table. But does anyone recognize where that table is? I was trying to think of what's the best example of a king's table in our time, and that was the best I could come up with. That's where Queen Elizabeth has her dinners with people that are pretty important. We'll come back to that in a minute, but go ahead to the next slide. If it works, there's our family. And so uh, Robin and I have six kids all together, and five of those were brought to us through adoption, the last three from Korea. And we have 13 grandchildren. Uh, one, four of those came through adoption. One's in heaven now who was born in Korea. Uh, we had one that was born in Crimea and got out just before the Russians came. We have one uh, granddaughter that was born in China. And we have one grandson that was born in Kazakhstan. And, uh, and we actually have another grandchild that wasn't in this picture whose name is Harry. And we need to get a new picture, don't we, Robin? So poor Harry got left out. But whenever I'm in Texas, I always like to point out that... Uh, the, the boy that's sitting, uh, as you look at the picture over on the far right, the one that's sitting down front by the, the young man in the plaid shirt, that's my grandson, George W. <laughs> okay. Well, an interesting thing happened along the way with Hope for Orphans. Uh, for about 10 years or more, we were a part of uh, helping churches to launch adoption ministry, foster care ministry, orphan care ministry that we'll talk about tonight. But about six years ago, I got an amazing opportunity to go to the border of North Korea in China. And I actually learned about thousands of North Korean orphans who cross the, the river there and are basically hidden in safe houses. I visited some, and then Christians helped them to escape through Thailand, Kaos, Laos, and Cambodia. That's two combined there, uh, to South Korea. And, uh, and then I got to go inside North Korea for three days. And I wanted to show you a picture of kind of what that looked like. Next slide. Uh, on the left is a view from the hotel that I stayed at in North Korea. And, it's, and it was so the misty, polluted like it. But there's Korean writing all the way around that obelisk. And every place I went in North Korea, they had a version of these. And I finally asked, what does it say on the side of that? And the, and the translator explained to me that Kim Il-sun, who was the founder of Communist North Korea, his grandmother was a Christian. He grew up hearing the gospel, the Bible. Obviously, he wasn't a believer. 
but he was familiar with Christianity. In every one of these obelisks that everybody walks by to work every day basically says the kingdom of Kim, of Kim Jong-il, at that time he was still alive, the kingdom of Kim, Jil, Kim Jong-il will last forever and ever instead of Jesus. And that's when I realized it wasn't even communism, it, it was a cult. And it was, it was pretty much the creepiest place I've ever been. And on the right, that is my good friend, Dr. Jeff Paul. He's a neonatologist in San Antonio. He and his wife have adopted 10 girls. Uh, over the last 15 years, we've been friends. And he's been with me all over the world. And he went into North Korea with me on this trip. Well, the reason I bring this up is that the last night that we were in North Korea... They had, the whole time we were in North Korea, they had these two secret police guys who were with us everywhere we went. And I know this sound, all I can tell you is if I've ever met two people that look like they've killed people many times in their life, it was these two guys. <laughs> I felt creepy every day I was with them. And, uh, and, they were, and the reason that there were two was to watch the one if he was tempted to and somehow collude with the Americans or try to defect or something like that. So anyway, these guys were with us all the time, and I'd never been with people like that. And the translators would, would help us to ask questions, and they would sometimes ask us questions. And we kind of got to know them as we went all over the place for three days in uh, this port city in northern North Korea. And what I'll never forget was the last night, the, the head of the Communist Party for that whole part of North Korea came to have dinner with us. And they were trying to show off. They brought me a Coke out, and we were having dinner. And in the middle of this dinner, there was one of the two Secret Service guys who was more creepy than the other one. He was the one I just gave me the creeps every time I saw him. And, he said, and, and the translator said he has a question. And his question was, is because he'd learned about my family and, and Jeff's family, and he said, how come... How come y'all adopted all these kids that aren't yours? Why would you do that? And I looked at Jeff, and Jeff looked at me. It was night. We didn't have our passports. We were in the middle of North Korea. And all I could think is, how do we answer that question and not get arrested? <laughs> and I looked at Jeff, and I said, what do you think? And Jeff said, what do you think? And I said, I guess we go for it. I said, why don't you answer? He wants to know, you've adopted more than me, so you answer. <laughs> And so I'll never forget this. And, and, and all through this, one of the Korean ladies that was with us, she said, they act like they don't speak English, but they know everything. And she would say this in front of them. She wasn't afraid of nothing. And she said, they act like they don't know English, but they know everything you're saying. They just act like they don't know. And so Jeff looks at the translator and he goes, well, please tell him that we believe that because we have been blessed, because we have been blessed, Jeff said, God has given us the opportunity to be a blessing to others. And that's why these children are our own children and they're in our family now. And before she could translate the creepy one, the creepier one, <laughs> he leans over with this really emotional face and he goes, I love you. <laughs> and, and my heart was beating like 90 miles an hour. I thought this is, and, and, and so then through the translator, and she was right. He didn't know what he was saying. And he forgot that he was supposed to act like he didn't. And, and he, goes, he goes, I understand now. I understand. You guys in our country, you would be great communists. This is what it means to be a communist, to share with those who, who don't have as much as others. And Jeff said, yeah, but we do it voluntarily. <laughs> but he didn't hear that. But, but, but anyway, that was kind of an aha moment for me. 
because I realized that through this North Korean communist secret police guy who clearly killed people routinely, that he couldn't quite understand why children that were not ours biologically would be in our families and have clearly a very affluent, compared to their life, uh, type of, of way of living. And he, he interpreted that through the only grid that he knew, which is a communist North Korean. And he made sense out of it through that, that worldview. But that wasn't the correct worldview, but that was very interesting to me. I read a book about three years ago I want to recommend to you. It's called The Grace Effect. And The Grace Effect was written by a gentleman whose name is Dr. Larry Totten. And Dr. Totten is an apologist. He goes all over the world uh, debating people like Hitchens. If you're familiar with some of the most famous atheists of our time, he debates these guys about the claims of, of the Bible and Christianity. He also is an adoptive father who adopted a little girl from Ukraine. And pretty much like me, it rocked his world when God took him through adoption. And, and Dr. Totten actually has, I believe, a beautiful commentary to explain what Dr. Paul and I experienced with that secret policeman. He says, atheists don't do benevolence or grace. Their worldview is very different than that of the Bible. And he goes on to explain, communists, Muslims, secular countries don't see the valuable don't see the value in the vulnerable. And in, in this book, and I was gonna, I'm not going to take time to read it right now, but in this book he explains how when he was in Ukraine, which was now democratic, that he was asked to speak at a university, and when he did the Q&A, the first question was exactly the same question as the, as the North Korean secret policeman. Why would y'all do this? These kids are worthless. Why would you waste money and time and effort on basically human trash? Why would you do that? And he says that the reason that they ask that question is because they come from a background where what there is evolution, atheism, no truth, right? So there's, it's not a surprise that when, you have, when your worldview comes from that perspective that you would find it puzzling why anybody would want to take a child into their family that wasn't theirs biologically. Are you with me? When I thought about all of this, and I, I want to get this right, I wrote this down. I think there's a correlation to this whole topic in our country. And I don't know if you are familiar with, with Pastor Tommy Nelson. Robin and I listened to Tommy this morning on the way down. He's the pastor of Denton Bible Church. And I agree with Pastor Tommy Nelson that in our own country today, what we're seeing are basically two worldviews. They're standing much like in Braveheart when, when the Scots were on one side and the British were other. Remember that scene? Every guy here loves that scene. Most women may not remember that, but guys do. When, when Mel Gibson gives the, the big speech. And those two armies are on the field and they're standing there. And before they fight, they're looking at each other face to face. And there's two sides. That's what Tommy Nelson was describing. One, one of those armies believes that God is, is real. They believe in absolute truth. And they believe that good and evil exist. The other side believes that only evolution exists. Time plus chance and relative truth. And standing, I would submit to you, beside these two armies are the armies of heaven and the armies of hell. What we're witnessing in our own country is that God's plan is being completed in plain view. And I would also say that abstaining is not an option if you're going to be salt 
in light. We have a, another friend. I was talking to uh, Jared about this, whose name is Russell Moore, who's an adoptive dad. Some of you may know who Russell is. He adopted some kids from Russia. And in his book, <coughs> excuse me, Adopted for Life, I think he makes a really fascinating point. He talks about the supernatural part of this topic. And he said, it, you know, the truth is, is that demons hate adoption. Demons hate babies in the first place. And the reason that they hate them is because every baby is a reminder that their destiny and their doom and their judgment was sealed because of the birth of one baby in Bethlehem. And every time a child comes into a Christian home, it is also a picture of the gospel where the work was completed, the work of redemption was completed on the cross. Isn't that interesting? There is a supernatural war that's going on around us every day, whether we know it, believe it, or see it. And we're all a part of it one way or another. Another thing about this, this whole idea of two, the two worldviews, the biblical worldview and the atheistic worldview, is that what makes Christianity different, and I know that most of you know this, is the idea of grace. Grace, in fact, is one of the main things that makes the church of Jesus different than all other faiths. We believe that men can only come to relationship with God through faith and what? And grace alone. Salvation is a gift. And I know a lot of you guys work for some big companies down the street. It's not pay for performance, is it? It's a gift. So I began to think about this, and I thought about coming to see you guys, and I thought, are there any examples of this idea of unmerited favor in God's word that also demonstrates God's eternal plan in the same manner that I would submit to you in adoption as the visible gospel? And that led me to where I want to turn today, if you have your Bibles, and we'll have it on the screen in the ESV, 2 Samuel chapter 9. Now, in 2 in 2 Samuel chapter 9, King David is on the throne, and, and he has a thought. You may be familiar with the fact that Jonathan, the son of King Saul, was David's best bud. They had a covenant. They were closer than brothers. They loved each other. And now David's on the throne. Saul's dead. Jonathan's dead. Basically, everyone in Saul's family is dead. And then I want to pick it up here in verse 9. And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him? And this is a key, the key word in understanding, in my opinion, chapter 9, kindness. Maybe, maybe even substitute the word grace there. Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul, Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. And, excuse me, <clears throat> and they called him to David. And the king said to him, are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? And Ziba said to the king, there is a son of Jonathan... He is crippled in his feet. Now, if you're familiar with the earlier part of 2 Samuel, we know that when the, the forces of David and when the battle was going on in Jerusalem, that the, basically the nanny who grabbed uh, Mephibosheth, who had a different name at that time, she grabbed him to flee, 
And along the way, we don't know exactly what happened, but she dropped him. He was injured, and apparently he was, had a spinal injury, and he was lame in his feet. That's why he was crippled. And he also changed his name, and that's when his name became Mephibosheth, which is, is like worthless one. Anyway, so um, Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan, and he is crippled in his feet. And the king said to him, Where is he? Notice he didn't say, well, why is he lame? Or how did that happen? He didn't care that he was crippled. And he said, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, he is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir to the son of Amiel at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, grandson of Saul actually, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. Now think about that for just a minute. If you've never read this passage, here you are, the grandson of King Saul. Your grandfather tried to kill David, who's the king now. You've been obviously hiding. You don't live in your own house. You live in some other guy's house. You're being taken care of. You have no assets. You have none of the wealth. At one time, you were a prince of Israel, and you're basically living in hiding, and they found you. And the king says he wants to see you. What do you think he was thinking? What was going through his mind? I believe what was going through his mind was what happened in every kingdom like this in those days. That when there was a new king, you got rid of everybody who was a threat from the previous king. So surely Mephibosheth thought that being called before the king meant that he was about to be executed and killed. And then we'll pick it up. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear. We've heard that before in the word, haven't we? We'll hear that in the New Testament many times. Do not fear, for I will show you, and there's our word again, kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore you to all the land of Saul your father, and you shall eat at my table always. The king's table. And he paid homage and said, and I think this is so honest. You couldn't make this up. If you were trying to make stuff up, you wouldn't write it this way. Listen to what Mephibosheth says. What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? There are very few things in Israel that were more despicable, more gross, more worthless than a dead dog. But that's what he calls himself before the king. And then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belong to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that, my master, that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. As well as Ziba's family, by the way. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, and underline this, shall always eat at my table. Complete reversal of everything that he thought was going to happen. I think it's really fascinating. I just want to take a, a quick money trail here. And you don't have to turn, but in Luke twenty-two thirty, Jesus in the future tells his disciples, he says this. Jesus told his disciples in, in Luke twenty-two thirty that we and, and they are one day going to be at a table as well. 
And we will eat and drink, as Jesus says, at my table, in my kingdom, and and you will sit on thrones, is what he told them. Very similar language to what David said to Mephibosheth that day. So as we complete this passage, it says, Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. He was a rich guy. Ziba wasn't some guy, you know, that was barely making it. He, he, he was a very affluent and wealthy fella. And now he's been told the rest of your life, your whole family is going to serve this crippled grandson of King Saul. Then Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. And so Mephibosheth ate at David's table, another underline, like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. And so Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. Now, I want you just to think about, this isn't a story. This is history. If we had been there that day, if we'd had a camera or a video camera, and we could have shot picture, this actually happened. And not only did it actually happen, it was a picture in the sovereignty of God of what God is telling you and I today and what he expects from us and what we should rejoice and rest in as well. If we are to be conformed to the image of Jesus, what does this kind of grace mean for us? What can we learn from Mephibosheth? First thing I would say is that we, we need to realize that we are Mephibosheth. And in doing a little research this week, as I was thinking about this passage, I came across this from a, a commentary. It says this, David's grace to Mephibosheth is a wonderful picture of God's grace to us. We are Mephibosheth. We are hiding, poor, weak, lame, and fearful before our king who comes to us. We are separated from our king because of our wicked ancestors. We are separated from our king because of our deliberate actions. We're separated, we separated ourselves from the king because we didn't know him or his love for us. That's all true, isn't it? In 1 John 3, 1, it says this. How great is the love of the Father. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called, what? The children of God. And that is what we are. I have a question. How many of you here are adopted? Is anyone here that was adopted by your family? I see one, one hand. Okay. If you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to Romans 8, 14. This is a familiar passage. And I'm going to read it to you. I think we have it on the screen. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as we cry, Abba, Father. Which we know means Daddy. Just what that little girl was telling me that day in the orphanage. The Spirit of God, the Spirit himself, testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. Okay, so I want to ask you one more time. How many of you are adopted? Ah, okay. Absolutely you are. And, and John Piper says something really wonderful. 
He says that before God created the whole world, before, the, before Eve and Adam were ever tempted in the garden, God's plan for sin, God's plan to glorify himself, God's plan when all of this wraps up and we're in the new heaven, was to set it right through adoption. Adoption was God's idea. Isn't that wonderful? And, and so, like Mephibosheth, we, in fact, John Piper says this. this is, I thought this was kind of cool. He said that when Jesus came into the orphanage to adopt me, it wasn't because I was the best looking. It wasn't because I was the smartest or a chemical engineer. <laughs> it, it wasn't because I was the best, best athlete or the best student. And he said, no, in fact, I was the crippled, foul-mouthed, dirty one crouching over in the corner. That's how Jesus adopts. Amen? Like Mephibosheth, we should marvel at why God should regard us, why he should regard me, a dead dog, and yet lavish such grace. The crippled man for which there should have been a sentence of death was transformed by grace for everyone to see. And the man who had nothing to offer became one of King David's sons, eating continually at his table. I like to wonder and, and think about, what did that look like? You know, here's all these guys that are David's sons. They're having this great, great dinner at a table that we can't even imagine probably. And, and he says, come on up. You're part of the family now. And he, he's struggling to get up on his crutches. And, and somebody probably had to help him. Ziba had to help him. And he drags himself up there to the king's table and sits down by these other guys who are the biological ones, right? And in David's eyes, he's, he's one of his. And he loves him. He's not his adopted son now. He's his real son. In fact, our, I mentioned we have six kids. And we have one that came biologically and she always used to complain, what sin did I commit that I had to get y'all's genes? <laughs> I want you to think about that table for just a minute. Because it was a picture of the one who would come and who would pay the adoption fee, who would pay the ransom for many, including me and you, so that we can sit at a king's table too. And the Bible tells us that there will be another dinner there will be another king's table one day. And this time, all those who belong to Jesus will dine at his table, just like Mephibosheth dined at King David's table continuously, it says. And I just got to read this to you. Every time I read this, it seems like there ought to be music and some kind of yelling. <laughs> but Revelation 19, 6 through 9. Then I heard something like the voice of a great multitude and like the sound of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder saying, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. And it was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. And then he said to me, Write, Blessed are those, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Isn't that wonderful? So there's going to be another table. There's going to be another dinner. 
And the only way you can come to that dinner is if you know Jesus. And the only way that you can know Jesus is to receive that gift by faith through grace. So what was the rest of Mephibosheth's story? It's really kind of interesting. I didn't know this till this week when I was studying this. In 1 Chronicle 8, 35-38, it talks about, it picks it up with Mephibosheth's son being Micah. Remember I mentioned that earlier? And, uh, and Micah had sons, who had sons, who had sons. And like the Bible does, it goes through these genealogies. And sometimes you kind of wonder, how come we got to read all that? If it's, you know, but it's important. And when you read through the genealogy of Mephibosheth, who should have been killed that day in front of King David's table, whose son Micah was obviously there probably as well, that his great-great-great-great-great-great-grandsons, 1 Chronicles says, through Micah were called mighty men of valor. They were archers. They were warriors for the true God. And in God's grace to this man who who didn't deserve it, God was glorified many, many years later through his descendants who were mighty men of valor, the Bible says. So, I would also say there's another thing that we can learn from this passage. We're David too. We're not just Mephibosheth, but we're also David. And that means that we're a part of the grace effect in our time. And the grace effect is not just limited to adoption. Don't get me wrong. Only a few people are called to adopt it. Uh, as a matter of fact, I, Rob and I would both tell you that the only reason that anyone should ever adopt a child is because you don't have a choice, because it's obedience. There are many ways, and tonight we're going to talk about all sorts of ways that the whole church can love kids and families. But grace is something that we can show in a thousand different ways, no matter what stage of life we're at, who our neighbors are, where we are, what our story is. We're, we're supposed to be David too. But this grace effect is being completed in, in our time and demonstrated uh, through loving kids that don't have moms and dads and kids in foster care. And we always say it only takes one church and it only takes one family to make a difference. Uh, many people don't know that there's a half a million kids just in the United States in foster care who don't have a mom and a dad. They're living in care. Uh, the average child who's taken into foster care last night in Texas uh, was picked up by the police. Uh, they, probably, they didn't have a suitcase. Everything they had was probably put in a trash bag. And there was a pretty, pretty strong probability, depending on what part of Texas you're talking about, there was no home for them to go to, and they probably slept on the floor at a police station or at a CPS office somewhere in Texas. And here we are, the most affluent Christians to live in 20 centuries, and on top of all that, we're Texans. Most of us are, I hope. You know, there's something wrong with that picture. But the good news is, is God's moving in the church in orphan ministry, adoption ministry, and foster care ministry. And when that happens, it brings about the grace effect. It brings about the opportunity to answer that question that, I, that we had to answer in North Korea. And, and, why, and why is it about the church? Why is God's answer through the church? Well, first of all, because ministry flows through the local church. Secondly, in the United States alone, there's 360,000 churches. Lord knows how many there are in Texas. There are, more, there are more, far more enough churches in Texas to deal with the 15,000 kids in foster care in our state than is needed. 
The church is, is so big, there are more Christians, they don't all believe the same thing, I'll give you that, but there are more Christians in the world than there are Chinese and Indians, total population put together. Despite living in a post-Christian, uh, post-modern America, there are still a lot of believers. And the church is huge. And the church is everywhere these kids are. There's kids in care in Freeport, and there's kids in care in El Paso, and there's kids in an orphanage in Guatemala City, and everywhere I've been, and almost in every one of those places, as our friend Rick Warren would say, there may not be a school, there may not be a post office, but there's a church. The church is God's answer for this crisis. And we're going to talk all about that tonight, and how Hope for Orphans is involved in it, and how you can be involved in it, more importantly. Well, in closing, at the end of that trip uh, in 1994... Uh, that I talked about at the beginning, I, I brought my son Ethan home uh, to Texas. In fact, one of my favorite things about, I have two sons and one daughter, they're all from Korea. Uh, my son Ethan is now senior at the University of Texas. Our son Noah is, who we'll talk about tonight, uh, just graduated at 20 from Texas A&M University. Woo. Very good. <laughs> Even as a Texas ex, I know when to pause. And, uh, and then we have a, a daughter, uh, Hope, who's a student at Midland College. And, uh, and a lot of times at church, you know, when they, when they talk about missions and stuff, people will come up to my sons and they go, well, where are you from? They're trying to figure out if they're Chinese or Korean or Vietnamese. And my sons, who have lived their whole life here, you know what their answer is? We're from Texas. <laughs> they don't even think they're Americans, which I'm really proud of. But... but, but uh, <laughs> Because we're, we're all Texans first, right? Those of you that, that are transplanted, you'll, you'll begin to understand why we say that. Okay. Anyway, so in 1994, when, um, when I was bringing Ethan home, and Robin was waiting for me in San Antonio, it hit me that this is a picture from Scripture as well. Because my son and I, he was three months old, went... Robin sent me, we hadn't had a baby in eight years, and she sent me with these diapers for an average three-month-old. My son, Ethan, I don't know how to explain it. He's in, he was like in the 90th something percentile for Koreans, but he looked like Buddha. Like, I, I mean, there was, no, there was no way that diaper was going to, it didn't even come close to going around those legs. And so first thing I had to figure out after eight years was how to change the diaper and find one that would fit. But when we got on that plane and we were on the way home, um... I just realized he has no idea where we're going. He has no idea the place that my wife has prepared for him. He has no idea that he's got two sisters and a brother that are just waiting. They're just waiting for that plane to touch down in San Antonio so that they can meet him. He has no idea about our church and our family and the grandmothers who all want to fight over who gets to bathe him first and all of those things. He didn't know any of those things. He could not imagine what had been prepared for him. Who does that sound like? And then, of course, on top of all of that, he got raptured, depending on your eschatology. But uh, he, was, he was taken up into the air, and he landed in Texas. Think about it. <laughs> I, I would just tell you one more time that we, like Mephibosheth, who have been adopted into the family of the king 
have the privilege to invite the needy and dead dogs like us to our table. We have the wonder of seeing how God is restoring Eden through adoption, through foster care, through missions, through discipleship, all of these different things. We have the privilege to see this relationship between physical orphans and spiritual orphans. We have the incredible joy of joining Jesus where he's working. If we will have faith and in the process, when we are available, our old pastor, Rob and I had a wonderful pastor who helped us at the very beginning of Hope for Orphans when everybody thought we were crazy. And he used to say, success is being available for how God wants to use you. And keep in mind, it's not what we do for God. We don't do anything for him. We only get the privilege to join him where he's working. There's a big difference. And when you're available to join him, wherever, whether it's with inner city ministry or it's youth ministry or it's unwed mothers, absolutely huge ministry for widows. How many churches are, are thinking intentionally about how does both of our parents are, are getting towards the end of their life and my mom's in an assisted living facility and I go in and I see all these people who have these wonderful stories and I don't see any churches there. I don't see anybody who's thinking about those people intentionally. Many opportunities for us to be able to reach out and join God where he's working and where his invitation is for us to join him. And when we do that, here's my argument, is that when you're available for how God wants to use you, you will experience the reality of him. You'll experience the reality of the one who loved you before you loved him, just like Mephibosheth. Okay, so to wrap up, I want to share a video with you, okay? I hope I'm not over time, but uh, we okay. But I want to share a video with you. I was talking about when I brought Ethan home. And Robert and I have been involved with Hope for Orphans now for 15 years. We've made a lot of videos. We've done all kinds of stuff. We've been all over the world. But before any of all that happened, in 2001 or two, I got my first MacBook with, with iMovie 1.0. <laughs> And while she was asleep and the kids were all asleep, I started messing around with some video and some pictures, just thinking about some of the stuff I shared with you today. And I know it was a miracle. My, my wife would testify. I, only God could have made this happen. But somehow, even though it's very amateur, it's, it's not like what you're used to if you've been to Austin Stone. This is a 15-year-old video, okay? But when I prayed about it, I thought about this is what I need to close with. Because I want you to remember the last picture of this video. If you don't remember anything else I said today, at the end of this video, you're going to see a picture of Ethan, my son, meeting his mother at the airport in San Antonio. And I want you to remember that that's you if you know Jesus. Okay? So, watch this. <laughs> 